0: you stay standing just a little bit longer with me as we go into the Word of God. This is Pastor's text this morning. It comes from Psalm 133, verse 1 through 3. Then we're going to jump over to John 17, verse 11, and then 20 through 26. First Psalm 133, 1 through 3, and this is what it says. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren, brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, and the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountain of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Now we're going to jump over to John 17, verse 11, and then verse 20 through 26 after that. Now... I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, and that they may be one as we are. Verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou hast gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved me, as thou hast loved them. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest Me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to gather in your name today. And we pray for liberty, we pray for power. We pray for anointing once again as our pastor brings forth the word. Prepare us for what you have for us this morning and let us grab on to that what you have for us this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.
1: Praise the Lord. You may be seated this morning. And before I preach, I'd like to iterate on something that Brother Zach had talked about. We are having a water baptism tonight. It's going to be a wonderful time of the Lord. We do have some converts that's wanting to be water baptized. We had others that was wanting to, but because of uh, vacations and travels, it kind of fell wrong for them, so we'll be doing another one real soon, but I am also going to be preaching tonight. The Lord laid a message on my heart. It's not going to be a long message. It's not on water baptism, so we want you to come out because I believe it'll really help you in your Christian journey and in your Christian life. I really believe that the Lord wants to really speak to us tonight, so we want you to come out. And then support those that are being baptized as well. But this morning I want to talk to you today on the subject unity attracts the anointing. How many wants the anointing of the Holy Spirit? Unity attracts the anointing. And so much of the time I think that we of the Christian church we understand the holiness of God. Matter of fact, we know without a shadow of a doubt that God is holy and even expects us to be holy. Because 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. The Bible tells Tells us in the book of Hebrews, chapter twelve, verse fourteen. Follow peace with all men, and without holiness no man shall see the Lord. That just tells us that without holiness you and I are not gonna see the Lord. As a whole, I believe that the church world has rightly understood the gospel as a message of holiness and righteousness. We understand that it is a gospel that will call men away from their sin. As a matter of fact, in Romans 6 and 23, the Bible tells us for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And without preaching a whole message or We can all agree that the gospel is summed up by us understanding that man was born into sin. And man has to be born again by repenting and turning from his sin and accepting Jesus Christ as Lord in order for him to be saved. How many know that's the only way for a person to be saved? Is to understand they were born in sin, that they're sinners, they got to repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Then upon their confession of faith, righteousness is imputed and imparted to them through Jesus Christ. Holiness, then, comes through regeneration, justification, which is provided through the redemptive work of Christ upon the cross, upon Calvary. This is what we call transformation, being transformed from darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, one of the trends that we see in the American church that really concerns me as a pastor, and that is there seems to be an environment where salvation takes place and revival spirit touches down, but it seems to be gone as fast as it came, and that troubles me. There seems to be no lasting visitation of the Spirit to where the Spirit inhabits a congregation or a group of people, but it's like He just kind of comes along and pays a visit. There seems to be no sanctuary, no hiding place, or a place of refuge that people can count on on a consistent basis. In most churches, it's like that God came down to pay a visit during a weekend revival, and there was a few people saved, a few Few people filled with the Holy Spirit, a few people baptized in water, and then as soon as the evangelist leaves or the guest speaker leaves, things go back to normal. How many ever seen that? We see that all the time across the trend of America. And it seems that we are like vessels with multiple punctures. As fast as living water flows within the church, it seems to be draining out just as fast. And I don't want to see the flow of the Holy Spirit come to the church and be wasted. I want this to be a big reservoir to where you can plunge in waste in deep to the glory of God. How many wants that? Do you want that with me? How many want that for the palace of praise? Because that's what God's wanting. That's what God's desiring. It's it's like in most churches across America. For every four people that come through the front door, they're kind of curious. They're wanting to check church out. Their times are getting evil, and they're getting curious about what, what the Lord's all about. For every four that walks in the front door, they say six walk out the back door. Why? Because there's nothing there in most churches to sustain or hold the people. That there's not a continual abiding presence of God. That there's no expectation among believers anymore in a lot of church services. It's just mundane. It's just lethargic. They come in. They go through their motions. They go through their worship. And the leave really never changed or challenged by the Holy Spirit. Well, number one, we don't have that right here, but I rebuke that spirit across America in the name of Jesus. And I proclaim that God wants to inhabit America and that God wants to inhabit the prowess of praise and keep a continual burning presence, a perpetual revival taking place in our midst. If you believe that, shout to the Lord. Somebody help me shout. But I've seen this kind of trend all across our nation, and yet I'm thankful that the revival spirit is here within our church. I'm thankful for that. But the real challenge that we have here is the palace, and we do have a challenge. I want you to know it is not just to have a manifestation of the presence of God because we do have the manifestation of the presence of God. We see things. We never know what to expect. We know things happen. We're seeing miracles. We're seeing people healed. We're we're seeing people touched. We're seeing people saved on a consistent basis. Uh, I thank God for it. Uh, But yet our greatest challenge is that we keep the move of God and that the presence of God remains with us long term, that it's not just something short-lived. It's not just something that we experience momentarily and we don't. Don't just have, and we don't just need to have a season where just God shows up some visit, but we need to create an atmosphere where He inhabits the church with His presence, where He decides to reside, where He moves in, where He lives, where He dwells. Every time we come into this congregation as a whole, when we gather as a group of people, you and I are to feel and see the tangible, visible presence of Almighty God moving among His people. It doesn't mean he always moves the way we want him to in the way that we are up on us individually, but we should see something of the presence of God. How many believe that? Come on, somebody help me preach here today. I'm talking about an encounter. I'm talking about living in God's presence. I'm talking about learning how to walk in the spirit. Somebody say amen. But we don't need a service that's dripping hot this week only to be cold as an iceberg the next week. Why is it that we can't keep momentum in the house of God? Why is it that we have a dripping hot service on a Sunday morning and everybody's all encouraged only to come back next Sunday? We've already lost our momentum. Instead of building upon it, the momentum goes down. God help us. Just like in the tabernacle of old, they were never to let the fire go out upon the altar. And if the fire was to never go out on the Old Testament tabernacle altar under the law, then how much more should the fire remain in a New Testament Pentecostal Holy Ghost filled church under the two testament of grace in Jesus Christ, which is a better covenant? If the fire was not to go out under law, it is surely not to go out under grace. Can I have an Amen? How many believe that the church can have a constant, continual, consistent, perpetual, everlasting, notable, noticeable presence of God in it? Do you really believe that? Come on, somebody. Or do you think, oh, no, we live by faith. You know, it's not by sight. Well, that's true, but faith are to produce results. We need to hold the presence of God for a lifetime and not just experience him sporadically here and there. We need to live in the spirit. Our goal is to abide in his spirit at the palace of praise and to live underneath and in his glory. That's what I desire for this church. That's what I desire for my life, for my family, that we live in the glory of Almighty God. What is the answer to perpetual revival and not just seasons of breakthrough or times of visitations, but how can we have a holy inhabitation of the presence of God? How can you and I as a congregation come in and have a perpetual burning passion of the Spirit of God where manifestation is everywhere and we walk out knowing that we've been with the Lord? That's what we desire. First of all, what is it that mitigates us from having a long-term sustainable move of God? What is it that's stopping us? I had to ask that question myself. I say, God, I'm seeing this trend that we got something going now in the palace. There's a movement, there's a shift. How do we keep it going? And yet, if we don't, what is it that is mitigating the move of God across the nation that is stopping the church from having a sustainable move of God? Is is it unrealistic to really believe in a long-term sustainable awareness and move of God's presence in our midst? Is that unrealistic for me as a pastor to want that? Do we really believe that this is even possible how many believe it's possible to have a, a move of God on a continual basis? How many believes that? Will you live in it, where it's revival spirit all the time, Amen? Or are we only going to succumb to having a flame flicker once in a great while to have a season of breakthrough, just enough to tease us and give us false hope of ever being able to live in constant victory? Do we have to let the flame go out as a church? to only have smoldering ashes that just reminds us of the past victories that we have. I declare, I declare that the palace of praise is in the move of God for their lifetime. Can I have an amen? God has not just showed up to show out in our church services in a few events and leave, but he's here as long as you and I want to be here and as long as we're here together in him. The Bible tells us in Matthew 18 and 20, for where two or three are gathered together, in my name I'm in the midst. How you believe that? God is here today. Amen? And th- if this is true, that God's desire is to live among us, in us, through us, and we be his living epistles because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, are we not? Isn't that what Paul said? then why why is it that we in the 21st century church in America seem to live far beneath the privileges of his abiding presence? If we are to have perpetual revival, then we're going to have to understand that we have to meet the conditions of that revival. For every promise in Scripture, there's a procedure for us to follow. God is a God of order, And he has established an official way of doing things. And in order for us to obtain that which he has decreed over us, we've got to be obedient to the thing in which he has said. Amen. Just because God wills something and God desires something for us and God wants to do certain things for us and to make things happen for us and he's even decreed them in the heavenlies over us does not mean that they're automatically going to happen. There's a lot of things that God would like to see people do, but they never do it. There's a lot of things that God would like to see people have, but they never have it. There's a lot of things that God's desire and will is for them to obtain, but they never obtain it. Come on, it's God's will. Then what stops that from happening? Just because God wills it, God's decreed it, does not mean that it's automatically going to happen. Amen? Amen. The rhema word for this hour is this, and I'm going to go slow because this is what the Lord put into my spirit. Are you ready? This is what God's saying to us right now. The absence of unity and the inability to hang together, the lack of community is traceable to the absence of the manifestation of the presence of God. Now think about what I just said. We have almost bought into this lie that moral completion is all we need for God to inhabit us with His body presence. We've all understood the gospel message of holiness, we understand it, and righteousness. But the gospel demands not only a moral wholeness, but God demands the church to have a relational wholeness. Are you ready for this? And even though we have rightly understood the gospel of holiness and righteousness, It's a call for men to confess, to repent, and forsake their sins, and to form a moral order and to live under a moral ethic code. We understand that. How many knows you're to live holy? We all know that. Yet we have to understand that Lucifer is not the devil because he violated a moral code or order in heaven, but Lucifer violated the relational order of heaven. Lucifer's problem was that he would not keep his office and stay within the primitives of his calling and his appointment He was given an office by God, a ministry, a position in heaven, the chief charitable, the chief musician, but he violated and chose not to stay within the perimeter of that ordered state of heaven, of what God had put him in. Therefore, he violated the relational order in heaven by leaving his first estate, and the fall was the result of his decision. He fell. Lucifer tried to exalt himself above God instead of obeying and remaining in a right relationship with God. And we see all kinds of relational violations in Scripture that dissolve unity and cause chaos. And, matter of fact, a lot of times they produce a lack of blessing, a lack of favor, a stayed hand, barrenness, drought, destruction. And sometimes, because of these relational differences, it even causes severe judgment in the church. Hello? We could give hundreds of examples of the violation of relational orders in Scripture, and I'm not going to do that. But while it is true that we cannot wink at sin, and we must have an uh, intolerance to sin and keep a moral ethic, we must have a moral order and a code of ethics to live by. Yes, we have to do that. Yet we must also understand that we must have a relational code of order as well in the church. Healthy relationship is a must if we are to have perpetual presence of God's blessings in our midst and to have his favor. Our problem is it seems that we tolerate and we want to wink at the indifferences in our relational order and not pay attention to relational fractions that withhold the blessings of God. We don't even know that they withhold the blessings of God. It's almost like we become self-righteous and we think that our moral uprightness justifies our relational indifferences. Well, I'm not committing adultery. I'm not stealing. I'm not robbing. I'm not doing all these things. Therefore, I am upright. I want to tell you. I'm going to get to it in a minute. That's self-righteousness. Disunity is an abomination and it's a direct disobedience to the command of our Father. We can have all the moral code in place and yet still miss out on a move of God. We can come in here as a holy people. Come on. We can come in here morally right and still not have a move of God. We can meet all the criteria of a clean moral life and still not have the glory of God within our midst. Why? Due to us not having relational constructs in place to sustain that move of God. We have to have unity. Between pastors and congregations, ministry leaders and their followers, between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between brother and brother and brother and sister, and sister and sister and sister, between our relationships with God. If they're not intact, you can forget about the fullness of God's glory being in the church. Come on, somebody help me preach. We can sit here and work on our moral life all we want to, but we better start paying attention to the kind of relationship that we have with one another in the body of the Lord. Somebody give the Lord praise here. I'm preaching better on what you're letting on. This is why the scripture says, and I'm not gonna preach on all these scriptures because they are messages within themselves. Listen to what it says and then understand them. Obey them that have the rule over you. This is talking about people in the church. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as that they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that's unprofitable with you. In other words, if you've got schisms between the people that have rule over you and they're trying to give an account for your life, it's going to not only be unprofitable to the church, it's not going to go well for you. Now, I wished I could preach right there, but I don't have time. And then there's Ephesians 6, verse 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is Right right to honor your mom and dad. Listen to them. I can't stand the stiff-necked, hard-hearted children that want to take rule over their parents. Makes me mad. Come on, I'm preaching not in the anointing right now, I'm preaching in anger right now. Hallelujah. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. In other words, God's saying, "Children, obey your parents, because this is the first commandment we're promised. If you'll do what the commandment says, you'll live long on the earth." You say, "Well, there's been people obey their parents, and they've died at 30. Yeah, but if they hadn't obeyed, they might have died at 15." Come on, somebody! Ah, I wished I could preach right there for a little bit. My boys always told them, "If you want to act like the devil, well, I can beat the devil out of you." <laughs> Amen. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together, the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, I ain't going to preach here, Lord. If we don't have a proper relationship as husband and wife, our prayers are even hindered. How can we have glory in the church if God can't hear our prayers at home? Because we have a problem with husband and wives come in fighting all the way here and then when they come in, woo, I love you, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. And then we walk back and get in the cart, slam the door, shut up. Come on. And somehow we think because we're not going out and committing adultery against them or we're not doing all these bad things, that that there has no bearing whatsoever in how that God can move and how that God wants to move in the church. Come on, somebody help me preach. What's the golden rule of the Bible? Do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you. What's happened to that? Matthew 6, 14, 15. You know the scriptures. For if you forgive men of their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you of your trespasses. But if you don't forgive men of their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Come on, we can give th- hundreds of these scriptures. John 13, 35. This is how all men will know that you're my disciple if you have love one toward another. We can give multiple verses on biblical relational order, and I think most of us get the general idea of what kind of message that I'm trying to convey in there. How many knows there's all kinds of other scriptures? I don't have to go any farther and be repetitious to that because we can. But anytime someone wants to get out of divine order and become independent to themselves, this independent spirit has to be destroyed. If not, it's going to destroy not only the individual, it'll destroy a long, the long-term the church. But anytime someone wants to get out of divine order and become independent to themselves and to govern and do as they please, it removes themselves out of the biblical mandate and God's spiritual order. And anytime someone wants no governing, no accountability, no responsibility to anyone, even it's just rebellion in its highest form, it don't matter what you think God's wanting you to do. He'll always structure that which he's calling you to do. And you'll always give an account and be under somebody to the rule of ministry in your life. I don't care who you are. When people do not want to fall under spiritual government, spiritual authority, obeying them to have the rule over them, it's not only rebellion, it's an abomination Listen to what Proverbs 6, verse 16 says. Am I preaching okay today? Wave at me if I am. Woo, say, well, those of you waving, you ain't got hit yet. Hang on, I'll be along your house here in a minute. Amen? But Proverbs 6, verse 16 says, these six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven's abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shit. You know, some things we don't even think about God not liking. He does not like a haughty or a proud look. Amen? Can't stand it. No more than you can stand it. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth the wicked imagination, feet that be swift to run into mischief, false witness that speaketh lies, he that soweth discord among the brethren. Notice something: while God hates the proud look, the lying tongue, the violent deeds, the wicked thoughts, those that run to mischief, the shedding of innocent blood, yet there's something more offensive to God than even the absence of the moral integrity. It's disunity and one that shows discord among the brethren. It's something that God not only hates, but it's the seventh one listed, it's an abomination. Do you understand that God hates discord more than even the shedding of innocent blood? None of you would think about going out here and killing an innocent child, and, and his life would fall to the ground, and blood would be spilt. Because of your murdering, your murdering ways. None of us would think about that. But God says that if you spread discord among the brethren, you're worse than that murderer because I abhorred it. We don't even think about that. As bad as abortion is, none of us Christians, as we've come to the knowledge of truth, in our past life we may have done it and God has forgiven us and thank God for liberty and forgiveness. But if you, as a Christian, you not even think about murdering and shedding the innocent blood of that child. But if you spread discord among someone that you know, it's worse than murdering that child in the eyes of God. God hates the other stuff. But discord is an abomination. Help us, Lord. Why am I preaching this? I have no idea. The Lord just put it in me. It's odd how that we would never think about lying, cheating, drinking, cursing, stealing, committing adultery, things like that as a Christian. But many times we think nothing about having a little roasted pastor, neighbor, or church member after a Sunday morning service down there as we're eating together. Did you see so and so in the church? Come on. We don't think anything about it. We think nothing about little gossip, little slander, blasting someone on the internet. Hello? As a matter of fact, statistics says gossip has become a commonplace in the typical church of America. The privilege of expressing opinion, no matter who it hurts or how it offends, or how much strife that it stirs up, it seems to be the American way. I'll say what I won't say, bless God. Yeah, and you'll be judged for it. Amen? While people expect a pastor to deal with immoral deeds of the body and to bring church discipline. If someone commits adultery as a church member, they expect me to deal with it. And I do deal with it behind the scenes that no one even knows about. Yet, the pastor that has to deal with, we expected to deal with those immoral conducts would almost be polarized in bringing church discipline for relational issues because they'd tell them, it's none of your business. Stay out of our affairs. Come on. One pastor said, if God were to judge all who were guilty of divisive speech or for posting negative words on the internet that would stir up strife or dissension and discord, if he would have to deal with all of that, then it would paralyze most churches in America and they would be destroyed. God help us. Man, this hit me hard in studying this week. They say that it is not, now listen, I'm going to go slow right here, because this is truth. I see it. They say that it is 90% more likely for a Christian to put something negative online from one bad experience in one moment of time than it is to put something good online for a thousand good lifetime experiences. In other words, if I'm good to you over a period of 10 years and done a thousand good things for you, you're not likely to get on the internet and brag about me. But let me hurt your feelings one time out of a moment of weakness, or maybe you took it wrong, or maybe I said it wrong, and you're willing to fry me like crazy on the internet. Isn't that true? Due to the internet, they say, we have come to accept divisions, separations, and even schism as a normal way of life in the American church. And due to this, negative speech has become a part of our normal vocabulary as believers. I'm amazed at how that so many Christians want to patronize negative activity and negative speech from believers online. Someone will post something so horrendous and then other people, oh, I'm so sorry, And they'll get on the bed. Stop! Doing that, rebuke them, reprove them, correct them in love. For heaven's sakes, don't patronize people that are fishing for those kinds of things. Oh, that went over like a lead balloon, amen? But when all this activity going on, then we ignorantly believe that we're ready to be used of God in some transforming way to usher in an awakening because of our moral conduct. But God still regards such actions and attitudes that create such chaos and division as the highest form of evil in the church. They say that it's more likely, I like this one, for someone to get mad at you for killing their dog that bit you than it is for blaming the dog for biting you. Did you get it? Dog bites you, you shoot him, they're mad at you. Not because the dog bit you. They're not mad at the dog, they're mad at you for shooting the dog. When we try to override relational constructs and justify it by moral conduct, it's nothing more than the manifestation of pride in its highest form. Matter of fact, when I begin to almost put a whole sermon together on pride, and my goodness, you could preach, Woo, I could tie it into a lot of stuff. But pride in itself, is, let me just say this, it's not only a form of division, because it's a standard against God order, pride is the result of selfishness, self-centeredness, and it's a promotion of self, it's idolatry, and it's an abomination. As a matter of fact, it is seen in a self-initiative life that is void of any restraints or accountability or submission to authority. No one is going to tell me what to do. God Bless God, I'll do what I feel like God wants me to do, It's exerting our will over God's will just like Lucifer did. It is seen in an independent spirit with no government, no structure, no bylaws, no safeguards, just personal opinion and self-expression. This is despicable in the eyes of God and it's an abomination. Now let me go on. You and I cannot facilitate a long-term perpetual revival if we ignore our relational order by justifying it with our moral conduct, which is nothing more than self-righteousness. How dare us think that we are holy just because we do not violate some moral ethic or, or by our behavior? But we can dishonor, disrespect and not submit to authority and we murder our brothers and sisters with our tongues, with our words and yet Jesus said this, by your words you're either gonna be justified or by your words you're gonna be condemned and know this, you'll give an account for every idle word that comes out of your mouth. Amen. We have to understand the holiness of God but we have failed to understand the sovereignty of God. Exposure to holiness of God. How many has been exposed to the holiness of God? Sure we have. It reveals our violation of God's moral order. When you see yourself as God sees you, you see how filthy you really are. Isaiah experienced that, didn't he not? In Isaiah chapter six, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, train strain filled the temple, and then Isaiah said, woe was me, a man of unclean lips that dwell amidst the people that are unclean. In other words, when he saw God's glory, boom, it revealed to him his moral unrighteousness. His holiness caused him to repent and reorder his actions. It caused him to become where his walk began can be consistent with God's holiness. But exposure to the sovereignty of God affirms God's lordship. It declares he has the right to rule over your life. He's not only your Savior who saved you from your unrighteousness, but he is your Lord to rule over and reign over your life. Amen? Exposure to the sovereignty of God affirms that the Lordship it declares he has the right to rule, that he's Lord, and this demands submission to him. In order for our relationship to stay right, we have to be obedient to the sovereignty of God. Amen? Amen? For us to be in submission to him by us recognize his sovereignty, it demands that we submit to those who he places over us in authority. our pastors, our parents, the police, the boss, the teacher, the church leader, on and on and on and on and on. You may not like your boss, but if he's over you, you treat him with respect. Come on, while the exposure to his holiness aims at the restoration of moral order, exposure to his sovereignty aims at the restoration of the relational order. And the truth of the matter is, for us to be disobedient in our relational order, it makes us just as unholy and disqualified for service if we went out and committed adultery. There's no difference. Why? Because unity is the very nature of God. And where there's a lack of unity, there's an absence of the presence of God. Did you hear that? Unity is the very nature of God, and where there's a lack of unity, there is an absence of the very manifested presence of God. God's not only holy in his nature, folks, but we have a God in heaven who's a trinity. He's three, yet he's integrated whole as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are, they are in such harmony and in such unity that they are not even considered as three, but the trinity is considered as one. Never in their, There's never conflict between them, they defer one another. They give glory one to another. When you praise one, you praise all three of them. Somebody asked me one time, well, if I praise the Son, is it all right to praise the Holy Ghost? Honey, when you praise the Son, you are praising the Holy Ghost. When you praise the Holy Ghost, you're praising the Father. When you praise the Father, you're praising Jesus. Amen? When you praise Benjamin Miller, you're praising me. Amen? The Father wills, the Son reveals, and the Spirit executes. And what you see in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, the divine trinity is perfect harmony and complete unity all the time. We have a God that is committed to relational order just as much as he is to moral order because one cannot be separated from the other in God's eyes. God is not only holy, he's unified, he's three in one. There is no division around his throne, only perfect unity. Though there are three distinct persons in the Godhead, yet they are one. That's what the Bible says in 1 John 5, 7, and 8. For there are three that bear record in heaven. Say three. That bear record in heaven, they're there. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And then he goes on in verse 8. And there are three that bear witness in the earth. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three are one. Say one. The essence of the relationship one to another is the essence of who, uh, who and what God is. Jesus said in John 17 to Philip, he said, hey, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I'm in the express image of my Father. Jesus also said in John 17, 21, Thou, Father, are in me, I in thee, that thou also may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, I'm not going to be able to preach everything in John that I want to because of time, but the way the world would believe is that Je- the way that the world would come to believe would be that Jesus that Jesus was actually sent from God was him being one with the Father. And the Father manifested himself in Jesus. And when the Father manifested himself in power and glory through Jesus, the world believed upon Jesus that he was sent from God. How do I know? When Jesus, when, when, when uh, Joseph, when, when um, in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus, trying to think of his name, when he came to Jesus, he says, We know that thou art a teacher that come from God because no man can do these miracles unless God be with him. How God bared witness of Jesus Christ and anointed him with the Holy Ghost and with power who went around doing good and healing all as the press of the devil for God was with him but he bared witness of him. Come on somebody. John become to understand who Jesus was while he was in prison when he sent his servant and said are you the one that is to come or do we look for another and he tells John's servant you go tell him that the blind see that the lame walk that the dead is raised again and he'll know that the gospel has been and that it's me that he's looking to so Jesus said the way the world's going to know that I've been sent by you is by me being one with you come on the same it is with us the essence of who we are is determined by our relationship with each other and with him and the only way the world can see that we belong to Christ is us becoming one with him and then us as a body being different members becoming one to where he can manifest himself through us and as he does it's a revelation that God is with us hallelujah I'm about to preach we cannot preach a pure gospel of reconciliation by being divided, with schisms, disunified, full of divisions. No matter how much moral code that we have, Amen. If you got strained relationships, they're going to be—you're going to be void of the anointing of God, and you're going to be disqualified of God until you get them right. It was Gandhi that said once, I sure would have liked to have met a Christian, but I never did. The way the world knows us is by the same principles that Jesus was known of the Father. Here's what Jesus says. This is how that men will know that you're my disciples by the way that you have loved one toward another. Amen. We can all be upright. We can be all good, outstanding citizens. Be honest, treat people good outside, and we can invite people to our church. But if they see schisms in the body, they're not going to believe at all in your salvation and that you're right with God. Come on. The message on evangelism rides on the beauty of the relational church. We do not have the message, folks, we are the message. You and I are the message. The stability and wholeness of the church in unity is the greatest testimony it has. It reveals that the Father sent us and that we're one with him. It is the greatest form of evangelism that there is, but when we call men from sin, but we live in isolation one from another, we have ought against one another, we have schisms, we have divisions in the body of Christ, and it's the highest form of hypocrisy, and it's the highest form of idolatry, and I want to tell you what First John 4 and 20 says. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother whom he has seen, how can he say that I love God and whom he has not seen? Not loving your brother is tied to not seeing God. If you truly seen God and was transformed, he says, you're going to love your brother. Unity is sacramental. It's holy. It's full of life. Unity describes God. Unity is the essence of who God is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit does not vote on things and the odd man loses. Well, the Father said yes, the Holy Ghost said yes, Jesus said no, he's out of it this time. That, That ain't how it works. They are one in purpose, perfect in harmony, complete in unity, they're holy in their nature, even as the power of heaven rises out of the unified nature of God himself Being three as one, yet the power of heaven also rises out of the church that is unified with him and is unified in his purposes. If you want power in this place, yoke together. You want power in this place, love one another, forgive one another, be forbearing one another, bear one another's burden, help the weak. Come on, somebody. God is who he is and he's all powerful by the unified effort of the Godhead being one. Even so, the church can have all the moral conduct that it wants, but morality will not produce power. It is unity that produces power. Can I have an amen? Oh, God. Unified church is to be a force on earth to be reckoned with, is it not? Why Deuteronomy 32, uh, 32 verse 30 say, one can put a thousand to flight. What can two do? Put ten thousand to flight. What did Ecclesiastics 4:12 say. If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And what? A threefold cord is not easily broken. What does it say in Matthew 18, 19? Again I say unto you that if two of you say two yes. shall agree on earth as touching anything that you shall ask, it shall be done of them from my Father which is in heaven. When a church learns to flow together like the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, honoring one another, affirming one another, loving one another, bragging on one another, deferring one another, helping one another, strengthening one another, comforting one another, come on, and not pleasing ourselves and exalting ourselves and trying to make ourselves of a throne and bring attention to ourselves. If that would happen, watch out, a Pentecost would come. What was the result of Pentecost? And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were in one mind, in one accord, in one place. And then suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as a rush of the mighty wind filled all the house where they were sitting. There appeared to them, clothed in tongues of fire, set upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. Of the Spirit of God gave them the utterance. Woo! I said that fast because you know them, and I'm running out of time. The power of Pentecost was produced by the unity of the believers. Being unified in purpose, one mind, one accord, one soul. Come on. Jonathan David had such a relationship that there became power to David's kingship as the result of them two becoming knitted together as one soul. Come on now. In our text in John 17, I wish I had time here, but I'm gonna quit right after this. Six times Jesus prayed and used the word one. Let them be one even as you and I are one, and let them be one even as, and on and on. Six times he prayed for oneness of the body. Seven times he used some variation of the word glory. To sum it all up, if you'll go look at that teaching, break it down verse by verse by verse by verse, he made it clear that the glory of God's power that will have earth-shakening results in our world will only come from the church that is in perfect unity. Hallelujah. How many want earth-shattering results around here? They get unified. We keep running to the altar and praying over, oh God, I, 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 I cussed last night. Oh God, I seen something on television. I said, oh yeah, we need to do that, but do we even pray about our relational disorders? Are we even paying attention about them, the schisms? Oh, they're sister so-and-so. I got to go this way. Come on. Haven't you ever just been around somebody and you just felt the distance? Huh? Come on. By their actions, the way they treated you, the way they wouldn't look at you in your eye, the way they wouldn't smile at you. Come on. What's wrong with nothing? Nothing wrong with me. And they see somebody else. How are you doing? That ticks me off. Come on, somebody. Am I the only one that sees that kind of nonsense go on in the body of Christ? Chisholm. That's created. Your ministry, your life, your anointed, your home, nothing will ever come in alignment where God can reside in the fullness of his power if you don't become unified with the people around you. It will not happen. God, help me. If there's to be any lasting impact on this divided and this degenerated world, then you and I as a church have to be unified. It is the unity that invites a level of anointing upon the body of Christ such as our world has never seen. I'm not going to be able to get into all of it because of time. Yeah, I've preached too long. Psalms 133 talks about how the unity is precious. It's as precious as the anointing that runs down upon the beard of Aaron, upon the head of Aaron, to his beard, even down to his skirts. You know what that's saying? It starts with leadership, but the body's got to embrace it. The body's got to become anointed. What we have a concept of church is like this. Let's find us a church where the pastor prays and sacrifices and fasts, and he gets up and he's anointed and he's powerful. Let us go to a place where we can glean from the presence of God. Come on. But the truth of the matter is, if the pastor has all of those things right, if the church has not become unified, there will be a lack of the manifestation of the glory of God no matter how much he devotes himself to Christ. That the oil, don't. Ju- it starts with leadership. If he don't have it, the congregation won't have it. Yes, it's important to get into anointed church where there's anointed leadership. But when that anointing begins to run down on the beard... And then it begins to drip on the skirt. It needs to go all the way down to the skirts of the garden. It needs to saturate the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The same anointing that rests upon the office of a bishop needs to rest upon the office of the congregation. Oh, felt good. We gotta buy into it. Then he goes on and says that the church that gets the anointing and is unified, it is there that God commands the blessings of the Lord and life forevermore. Woo! And if God, the Lordship, the sovereign God commanded it, there ain't no demon in hell that can take it away from you. You are blessed? You want your home blessed, your life blessed, your children blessed, your church blessed, you want the world saved? Let's get unified like we've never been unified. We're brothers, we're sisters, we forgive, we're long suffering, we're patient, we're kind, we're gentle, we're temperate. It's odd to me how that a prostitute that showed herself to immorality peddled drugs gave heroin to children that killed them can come into a church run to the altar and everybody just runs and just falls on them prays for them and ask God to forgive them and well we should but a believer that does something that sins against the body and he goes to the altar no one even dares get up around him It's hypocrisy. If this man after 35 years of ministry would fall, please can I have somebody that will love me. It's like the guy that, I've told this story before, my dad told it to me. There was a man in his hometown and he walked with another man to work every day. It was back in the Depression days and my dad was a little boy that really ministered to my dad. And he just told it all the time. Times were rough and there was a little lady. She was walking to go to work. She'd take her children to work. And every day as she was taking her children to work with her, these two men would meet them on the way and one man would open up his lunch box and he gave an apple to each one of the boys. And that was about all that he even had to eat. But he sacrificed every day for those two children. They were so kind to the gentleman. The other man didn't give them anything. Probably because he didn't have anything to give. It was tough times. And every day that went on, finally, the old man had the apples run out of resources and wasn't able to give the apples anymore. Guess who the children hated and guess who the mother turned against? The man that always gave the apples when he quit giving them, but began to love the person that never gave him nothing. What a sad thing. I've seen ministers, friends of mine, give their lives to families, get called three o'clock in the morning up to the hospital, do their uh, burying, their marrying, their burying, their child dedication, do it all. And all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, over one little incident, they leave him to go down the street to another one that's never done anything for him. We live in such a pitiful world, just a pitiful world is what I'm trying to say. Come on, somebody. There's some of us here today that if we want to really see the power of God work in the manifestation, we're going to have to go home. We're going to have to come and leave our gift at the altar And get up and go home and make some things right with our children or right with our parents or right with our neighbor, right with our boss, right with our friend. They're going to have to make some phone calls. you are going to have to make some apologies. Come on. There's going to have to be some. You may not be able to come to an agreement with everything you disagree on, but you can come to the agreement. We don't see eye to eye, but I love you anyway. I don't have to agree with you and to be in unity with you. I can be in unity with you even though we can have some disagreement as long as we do it in a dignified way. Amen? Would you stand with me this morning? I think I've got to quit.